Benifer is back. Brad and Jen are friends again. And Paris Hilton is somehow still making headlines. 20 years later, we're living in the world that the 2000s tabloids created. On this series, I'm going to tell you the story of a decade of American life through the trash we love to consume. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Claire Malone, and this is Just Like Us, the tabloids that changed America. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am the editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line, his thumbs are finally healed. It's Andy Greenwald. Praise be to he. I caught up. I can do it. We can do a gemstones pod. Righteous gems pod. Andy, we haven't really talked about righteous gemstones for this entire wonderful second season that just concluded. No. Uh, we have a very special guest today. We are joined by Danny McBride, the creator, uh, one of the, the minds behind Virtuous Gemstones, the star of the show as uh, as Jesse Gemstone. Uh, we're going to get to that interview pretty pretty quickly, but like we wanted to talk a little bit about this show, which we we really neglected this season, partially because here's the thing about Danny McBride shows, mm -hmm. they're real good. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes we've we've had this like comedy is tough to talk about because you're just like going through something. And saying, oh, this is funny or that's funny. But The Righteous Gemstones, especially in its second season, I think became something a lot different than just a comedy or it became more than just a comedy. Not that it really was the first season, but the second season kind of turned into this uh, cross-generational crime saga. And I thought it was awesome. But let's let's chat a little bit about it. What did you what did you uh, think of the second season? Well, what a ride for me. Let's let's focus this podcast. Where this is. Yeah, be. this is what's important. As people have heard me say, I missed the first season because it aired when I was in production and then dallied and dithered and did not catch up and then thought this was absurd. I clearly want to watch the show and will enjoy it. And I did like, do you remember in high school when there were people on the wrestling team and you'd be like, what's going on with you? Why do you have that haunted look in your eye? And why are you carrying a water bottle full of your own spit? And they were like trying to make weight, bro. <laughs> yeah. 
That's you know, it's just like this. This doesn't seem healthy for a fifteen-year-old. Yeah. But um, that was me over the last like seven days with two seasons of gemstones, which is not necessarily how the doctor would recommend ingesting this product. Yeah. But it was a really unique experience, and I think my first thing I want to say uh, with real humility and uh, uh, towards the world is I don't know how I've survived three years without baby Billy in my life. I'm just sorry for people who had to listen to a pop culture podcast with someone who is ignorant of Walton Goggins' performance, which is truly one of the most batshit, wild, and electric lived-in things I've ever seen on television. Yeah. Um, also, and I don't know, again, I don't really, because I was absent from it, I don't know how uh, the first season was received week to week, um, because clearly, as you alluded to, this is a more ambitious show than um, Eastbound and Down, at least in its inception, was. And um, although I think where that Eastbound and Down particular became quite sweeping, <laughs> yeah, where that jet ski landed um, was was really incredible. But or, or vice principles. I mean, I think Danny McBride has said um, he could see this going in a lot of directions for a long time. But um, there was something that was really freeing. And usually I'm anti-binge model, but there was something that was really kind of freeing about watching the first season just gobbling it up because I just enjoyed the parts that I enjoyed and whatever growing pains there were to kind of get your sea legs beneath you and figure out what the show wanted to be and what it was going to be and what it could be didn't really matter mm -hmm. because every five or 10 minutes, there was something that was so funny. It, you know, made me choke. Like it's just was a really impressive show. And then to your point, second season. Okay. So second season ended. We're, we're recording this Friday. We're airing yeah. this Monday morning uh, after the second season is concluded. So we're going to talk freely about it. I am, I was both, I was obviously entertained. I was very intrigued. And I guess I want to start our conversation by talking about that pivot to becoming a multi-generational crime saga oh, with I roots in the Dixie Mafia. I wanted and, to talk about your pivot from being entertained to intrigued. I mean, that's been the last 10 years of this podcast. It's just really a journey in my taste evolving. No, like the first season was fascinating in so many ways because of its focus on, I, I was trying to think of a, of a, um, a different word to say this, and there isn't one, on succession, mm -hmm. right? And it was pretty effective and pretty savage and funny watching these three adult children, which is something Danny McBride specializes in, um, childlike adult children, um, scrambling for, for purchase and for approval from their father. And then to sort of take that and just, move on in a lot of ways, right? Like obviously Jesse wanting to take over the church was huge in season two, but to really delve into John Goodman's character's past as the maniac kid. Yeah, like a, a Memphis, underground Memphis wrestling legend. And then and then cycle ninjas and like massive hits taken out on people. And that was, that was a, a choice. And I still enjoyed it, but I guess I wondered, were you, because we're doing a season's worth of conversation in this one conversation. Was there any part of you that was like, they were, they were, they were, they were building something in the first season that I was more intrigued by in terms of the family. And that this well, was a, so a I think turn? that there was an element of criminality of the first season with Gideon sure. and the whole, like the, the guys wearing devil masks and, and blackmailing Jesse and the, the Jesse blackmail plotline from the first season, aside from baby Billy was probably my favorite element. And just like his conversations with the men in his church, especially Levi <laughs> about what they had done, I believe in an Atlanta hotel room. 
The second season, I think, it, so the second season amplifies that, if some, if, if I could pick a word. And I think it also really leans into, you know, we probably look at Jody Hill and Danny McBride and to some extent David Gordon Green. And we're like... The, the directorial the, hydra that Yeah, and show. also like the creative trio that, that has been behind Eastbound Vice Principals, Foot Fist Way. Mm-hmm. And I think we probably are like, well, like you just can't get Kenny Powers out of your head and you can't get this idea of... Um, yeah, like, like you said, like these man, man children, uh, the, the American idiots. But I think that these guys are also like pretty big genre filmmaking fans. And yeah. you can see that in a lot of the stuff that they've written. You can see it certainly in David Gordon Green's work. They they truly do believe in action comedy as a as a genre, which is kind of a, a genre that I think people think they love more than it's actually successful. Like when Absolutely. you go back and you and you're like somebody's making a really cool action comedy, you usually get really really fired up about like the idea. Like I was trying to remember like one. There was that like Jesse Eisenberg one, like American Ultra that came out like a while back. Yes. Uh, you know, like where you're like, oh, it's like a funny action movie with Jesse Eisenberg. Who would have thought? And then you're like, God, it doesn't quite work. It's like very hard to make Beverly Hills Cop. You know, it's Beverly Hills Cop. Like that's yeah. what we're talking about. And then the first few kind of B to B minus to C plus versions of that movie. But really, right. we're all just chasing Beverly Hills Cop, which was an incredibly unique and wonderful thing. And then, you know, what was the most... Uh, the Jesse Eisenberg one was a great pull. Do you remember Hollywood Homicide? Yes, with, uh, the Josh Harrison Hartnett one. Ford yeah. and Josh Hartnett were like, yeah. it's going to be fun. And everyone was like, I'm not having fun. It's tough. Right. It's a tough lane. Yeah, and it's like you you have to remember that for every like iconic joke that's in Beverly Hills Cop, there is a 15-minute car chase. <laughs> you know, like there is like a shootout somewhere. So and it's it's a mystery film. So with gemstones, I think that I wouldn't say it's like Beverly Hills Cop good. Like there's only like five things that are in the world, but I think that they are really like honoring that that strain of entertainment and storytelling mm-hmm. where it's like we're gonna have five siblings vomiting in front of one another for 30 seconds outside of a hospital. But we're also going to have, like you said, cycle ninjas, shootouts, car chases, car flipping, you know, wrestling. And, and wrestling. That that was, I would say, the extended gemstone sibling bar fest was the nadir of my binge. That was, you know, I, 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 this is just a side note, Chris. I bet you've experienced this too. But when you tell the your your wife or maybe for other people listening your partner your roommate whatever sorry we've got work to do for five <laughs> nights in a row <laughs> and then maybe i'm just speaking hypothetically here maybe they're like okay fine i'll join you on the couch and you fire up the episode that begins with them all just projectile vomiting in the street <laughs> it's not it's not it's not a successful evening but to your point i agree and i think the thing that i was most impressed with with the season and we talked to danny a little bit about this for sure um was the kind of broadening of ambition and the resulting kind of broadening of their storytelling in order to support that. The thing that they know at this point is we are not the only ones who think that Danny particularly is one of the two or three just purest, funniest people on the planet. Like Mm -hmm. everything he does, I find funny. I just find it funny. And I was thinking back, like, what was my, what are my favorite moments in the first season? And yeah, like Edie Patterson's, you know, confession about her first, uh, love affair in the Outback Steakhouse is a masterpiece of yeah. writing and performance and everything and insanity. But I can't stop thinking about the time in the finale when he returns on the, with the private jet from Haiti and Amber, who, who has a much 
you know, expanded role in the second season, which I love to see, is like, you better, you better be joking right now. Our son better be on that plane. And Jesse says, I know this seems like one of my classic pranks. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think about that all the time. But anyway, the point being, you have this weapon yeah. with him and certainly now with ED as well. Like, it's just going to be funny. That is a muscle that they that they don't need to train. You know what I mean? And so the fact that the show is using its non-him saying funny shit parts to go to test the limits of what's possible makes the show feel really exciting in a way that I think really elevated the second season in a lot I don't, of ways. I don't know that there's like a show that has a deeper bench right now. Maybe with the mm-hmm. exception of Succession and Succession obviously has obvi- is, is a very funny show, but sometimes like the funny is like also you're nauseous while you're laughing. There isn't a person on Righteous Gemstones who's not capable of scene stealing. And it's it's really a testament to the way that they make that show that it doesn't feel like one-upsmanship. Like even at those, I think what, what's the name of the, like the Cracker Jason's. Barrel that they, Jason's? Like what even in those Jason's? dinner scenes, I don't know. But even in those dinner scenes, you never feel like somebody's like competing to no, like out funny the other person, you know, and to, to, to John Goodman's credit, he's often like at the head of that table and is like, I got to let Edie Patterson and Adam Devine and Danny McBride and all these people kind of get after it, you know, and, and then you wind up getting out of that scene. You're like, Tim Balls is the funniest guy in the in the whole world. It's it's. It is incredible to think about when the de- BJ with his consider- giant glass of milk. <laughs> <laughs> the degree to which the show and the comedy can be like juvenile and you know uh, certainly violent in some in some moments. It's not a mean spirited show, and that's something I was excited. We talked to Danny about that about how important that is to him. I mean. In its cracked way, it is interested in the genuine emotional lives of its characters, which is key. The thing that I was struck by um, in looking back on the first season and looking back on like the the McBride Hill Green project is the way that they have carved out. First of all, their own lane entirely to the degree where Eastbound was filmed in North Carolina. was filmed in South Carolina, and then I guess like they just liked it so much. Yeah. They at least Danny and David Gordon Green moved there. And just live there with their families, and they employ the same people, and they have their own thing. You know, yeah. it, 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 we, we, you and I, we, we love to talk about what Taylor Sheridan is doing on his ranch or what Lucasfilm is doing in Manhattan Beach, but don't sleep on South Carolina. They got no, a lot but going it, on there. it actually kind of reminds me of what Linklater and Robert, Robert Rodriguez used to do, and you know, yeah. when, when they kind of set up Austin as this like hipster Hollywood South to some extent for indie films. We, we can do this ourselves, but you know, I am, I am way late to do something that people were saying in 2019, which was that Righteous Gemstones was kind of doing in a half hour what Succession was doing in an hour. It was a very similar um, power structure and it had a different way into it. And that's absolutely true. I mean, Succession is about an American company, but as we've said many times, it's a British show Yeah, in a lot of ways, in its sensibility, certainly in its writing staff and in Jesse Armstrong's perspective on it. And I think that's one of the things that makes it fascinating and makes it extremely good. This is the American version of it to a degree for good or ill. Um, but I was think, looking back and I, and I was reading something that I wrote about Eastbound and Down in the finale, which was you know almost 10 years ago now, if you can believe it. And Eastbound and Down went off the air at the same time Breaking Bad did. Mm-hmm. And I was drawing, I think, not ludicrous comparisons between the shows, you know, in terms about like the role of the father, and the American man in this kind of like debased century. Um, 
it is really important not to sleep on their insight. I know that sounds like a heavy-handed thing to say about a goofy, goofy show like this, you know, that begins with a mass baptism in a Chinese wave pool. But there is a perspective at work here that is not that is not Hollywood in a way that I think is really fascinating, um, not just from the fact that it's incredibly entertaining and, you know, yeah, and I obviously I, I watched I think you're in, absolutely in right. Can, can I just, I'm going to piggyback on what you're saying there. Yeah. There are, are like plot points in this that I'm not saying are like lived experience and, and you have to get out of the bubble to understand this, but, and obviously like I think yeah, we can put a disclaimer at the top here, but we're spoiling the season in case people, this is for people who have watched the second mm-hmm. season. But when you get to find out that the Cycle Ninjas are in fact like Eric Andre's character's lost boys who he has been f- like <laughs> raising fearily <laughs> in the back lot of his church as they ride excite bikes around in circles. <laughs> like there's there's a certain like yes and to it, but there's also like a you it would it would be hard to come up with that idea like in a room somewhere. Like I don't know how you come up with the maniac kid. I don't know how you come up with the God Squad and having this like test of strength where you have to <laughs> shoulder the cross <laughs> across like the sandbar. Like these things that they come up with, like I just do think are unique to them and maybe unique to being outside of like a Hollywood, like we're sitting at a in a writer's room on on Doheny somewhere and just like kind of I, I think I think they do stuff that makes them happy. Yeah. You know, and um that can lead into sort of, you know, um, self-satisfaction, but that is not what's at play here. Like the choices they make are so surprising and so just consistently entertaining. And to your point about yes, and I mean, I think that what, what the show, if, if the, the, you know, Danny told us that how, you know, his relationship to improvisation and what they do on the show. And I think that was interesting to hear, but they definitely build on the foundation they lay down. Like mm-hmm. anything that is seems absurd in the moment, they yes and that to its potentially reasonable emotional, not conclusion, but the next point of its journey for the right. character. Um, something we talk about with him is like the decision to have um, BJ and Judy be married and actually love each other and then raise their Aunt Tiffany in a kind of <laughs> weird <laughs> reverse parenting situation. Yeah. Like that is... Um, Remarkable. And then to bring it full circle before we go into this interview, like, I can't fucking believe Walton Goggins on this yeah, show. So like, it, it's it's that, unreal, Chris. I, you it's were asking unreal. me, like, what was the sort of vibe on the first season? And I think everybody enjoyed the first few episodes. But when Goggins shows up, I think it's in episode three mm-hmm. of the first season. And he shows up in a resplendent way in that <laughs> full yeah. frontal. And then when you get the first interlude, that kind of delves into the backstory of baby Billy and Amy and like the, just like the kind of origin story of this family, which now I think they're, they're only just expanding and they kind of have no limits on what they can look into. And Danny talked about in our interview, this idea of like the, the family that you see in the seventies or whatever is much different than the family that you Mm -hmm. see later on like when amy's around it's a much different family than the one that winds up happening in 2018 or whenever the show starts and like just the fact that like they're thinking in those terms while also being like we also need to have time for keith you know like (laughs) and it's you know this is obviously easy for us to say from our you know ivory tower on the coast but sure the show is the show is southern you know in a way that i think a lot of 
programs or movies set in the South aren't necessarily. Like, I, 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 I think we, we, in the beginning of the interview, I talk about Eric Roberts' performance, you know, on this yeah. season, which is just amazing. And Eric Roberts has been a good actor and he's been a, you know, not great actor in my opinion in some things. And he's been here and he's been there, but like, he's from Mississippi, right? And you mm -hmm. sort of forget that. And that's not necessarily a calling card for actors. He, he knows the guy he's playing and he knows the voice that he's using and he knows the way he carries himself in a way that feels really kind of exciting and lived in. And that's absolutely true for Goggins too, who's also very much from the South and just seems to understand this person you know, and he brings someone to life who is in every possible way, if you just took the pieces from the hair to the clothes, to the voice, to the attitude, to the things that he does, including, you know, in the, the zenith of this season, fishing his newborn toilet baby out of a porta potty. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say selling baby Billy's elixirs. I, I mean, all of it is absurd. It's clownish. It's cartoony. But it's the emotional heart of the show. Yeah, yeah including getting punched in the face by Macaulay Culkin. I mean, I, I, it's funny. I, I felt like the interview with Danny was going to be like our version of the Chris Farley podcast. We're not we're just like, Danny, you're so, you're so like, funny. You're so funny. Remember that funny thing that you did? That was yeah. funny. And in a way, that's often our problem talking about comedies. But I guess the point that I keep circling back to without, I don't think, being able to articulate it especially well is just that like there is something that is really honestly, emotionally true north about this show and compelling in a way that all of the absurdity is in the service to work something out or figure something out about the role of religion in people's lives or the importance of family or just how everyone screws up all the time. But yet, you know, you, at the end of it, you, you try to do better. You, you got the team you were born with and you yeah. try to make it to lunch again the next Sunday. It's, <laughs> It's weird. I mean, I don't want to put too much import on it, but it's a pretty impressive show. And it was exciting to see that it got the quick renewal for season three. And um very interested to see where it will go because as we are now learning, they have no interest. Well, actually, we've always known this about them, but they do not sit on laurels and they do not take the safe route. Yeah, I, I mean, I, like between Thaniel and Eric Roberts and Eric Andre's characters, like I can't wait to see what the next ensemble additions to the show That was are. your only ding, right? Like for the season, you wanted more Schwartzman. I thought the first episode when Thaniel shows up like in this on the scene and also like his name being Thaniel, Thaniel Block, is that right? It's, it's so, it's so good. <laughs> I really wanted a little bit more of him, but it's a great, it's a great one episode turn. Uh, we can wrap it there and we'll get into our interview with uh, Righteous Gemstones' uh, Danny McBride. And you've had, so you've had those guys on when I was I had them come on, on for the first Gemstones season when you were in Albuquerque. So Jody, David, and Danny came in. And that was a handful. Like those guys. And it's, it was awesome. I mean, like it was, it was awesome to talk to those guys. They're so fucking down to earth and nice. And like, you know, just really, it's one of those things where, yeah, you do get a little bit overwhelmed because you're just like, want to ask Jody Hill about observe and report or ask David Gordon Green about all the real girls or something. And just, they're, but they're just really normal dudes. Can I just, before we get into it, it, at a certain point in the interview, you guys will hear me mention in passing to Danny, a movie that I saw at BAM that David Gordon Green championed and introduced a rare screening of. And I just want to recommend that people check this movie out. It's called the either it has two names, which is great for movies. <laughs> you know, it really helps them be found and find one, their yeah. audience. It's either called the Dion brothers or the gravy train. Okay. And it is this chicken fried Southern caper, super out there. It is just, is their sensibility, 
but from the 70s. It's starring Stacey Keach and Frederick Forrest. And I loved it. And it is kind of like a secret Rosetta Stone for what those guys wanted to do in the future and clearly, you know, what they're doing with Gemstone. So if you can find it, if it's on YouTube, I don't know. But I don't think it's available through legal means. But check it out. But otherwise, I was a little starstruck. I love this guy. It was awesome to talk to him. I, I think it's appropriate that you encourage people to break copyright law before we get into our interview with Danny McBride. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday chatting up about something, I'm sure, uh, severance maybe. But until then, Andy, it's great to talk to you, man. That is the one thing that the two of us and producer Kyle McMullen can count on. We'll be chatting about something for sure. Yeah. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Andy and I are so honored to be joined for the second time, actually, uh, by Danny McBride. Danny is the man behind Righteous Gemstones, along with Jody Hill and David Gordon Green. He stars as Jesse Gemstone, along with a cast of dozens. Honestly, one of the best things on TV. Danny, thank you so much for joining The Watchman. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you all for having me on here. I appreciate it. Um, Danny, I wanted to ask first off about season two, because... I feel like season one, you know, it was more of like a family dramedy. There was more of the stuff about the kind of inner workings of the Gemstone family. And then it kind of just snapped into a a crime show, kind of like it's like a more of like a Dixie Mafia Southern crime saga. And I was curious about what kind of went into the decision to expand and change the way 
Gemstones told its story this season? You know, uh, I think that was always sort of our plan was, you know, I think that we were just sort of like getting the audience, uh, introducing the audience to who the Gemstones were the first season. And once that was out of the way, then it felt like we could start having a little bit more fun. I mean, even when we shot the, the pilot, when I wrote that, you know, it was always sort of designed to be like a take on a sort of crime family. But instead of setting them up as, you know, the mafia or something like that, it was uh, like embedding them in this sort of, uh, you know, mega church world instead. So even the way that Jesse kind of behaves in the pilot where he wants to go like rough up this minister by like, you know, putting a mask on and going to send a message. It's like he's been aching for something like this to unfold with his family. Well, and also there's the there's the skeletons in the closet as as uh, evidenced by the the maniac kid who has become the maniac <laughs> grandfather. Um, I, I guess I I have questions about the role violence has played in the Gemstones children's upbringing. But before we get super Oprah, um, I guess my first question is just like when you sit down with John Goodman to explain that he's going to be breaking thumbs this season, is he the sort of guy who's just like give me more? Like is it red meat at a buffet, or is he like I'm going to need to be talked through this? You know what? He was he was really into it. Uh, when I sent the scripts out to him for the first time for the season, he like wrote me back and said how excited he was and how much fun he was going to have. And, you know, we would put him, you know, he comes right from the Connors right into our show. He has no downtime, you know, and then like the first week we have him like fist fighting a man in a parking lot, you know, <laughs> up all night long. And he's going to fight uh, Adam Devine. And what's awesome is you throw him any of this stuff and there are you know, stunt doubles and and people that are more than willing to step in and, and do this for him. And he just won't hear it. I mean, he gets in there and does all of this stuff himself. I mean, it's, uh, it's awesome. I mean, his level of commitment to it is just why he's so good. And for those of us who are, um, I'll just tag myself here. Chris always surprises me, not that familiar with Memphis and definitely not that familiar with wrestling. The world that you that birthed Eli Gemstone is a real world, right? Like Memphis wrestling is a specific thing that you got, you got hype about. Yeah, for sure. Memphis wrestling is, is definitely a real thing. And, uh, you know, they had all of these, uh, you know, they would all have all these like characters and stuff, but then there was like, sort of like, uh, there was this sort of like famous story too, about like these different promoters that had a like sort of battle to see who could control Memphis wrestling. And that in the way they had to do it was to see, how many people would turn up for their events. And so it's sort of, they would, you know, the idea of like stoking the fire and creating these characters and these plot lines and these heels, and these stories, it kind of became this weird battle between storytellers almost acted out with wrestlers and whoever could make the most compelling league was going to be who got to control uh, Memphis wrestling in that time period. And uh, I always was like fascinated by that story. Just thought it was so cool and so rich. And so it's always been a world that my mind has gone towards and just thought was fun. And I don't think I ever imagined that we would crack into it by telling the story of a televangelist pastor, <laughs> but, uh, but we managed to squeeze it in there and make it work. What's like, what defines Memphis wrestling? Is it kind of like a little bloodier? Is it a little bit more like campy? Like what is yeah, the you know, thing? It's like, it's, like, it's like where Jerry Lawler came from. I mean, it's uh, it, it has deep roots in the world of wrestling. So yeah, I just think it, uh, it is uh, very specific to that region and anyone who sort of like grew up in the South, I think kind of knows, uh, you know, knows about that. It's just it's something I always just kind of knew as a kid. I'm not really sure how or why, but it was just something I, my friends and I who were into wrestling, we just always knew about that. I was kind of wondering like, you know, over the years, it's even like since gemstones has started, but certainly since vice principles, like you've had so many different 
professional experiences, whether it's like working on Covenant with Ridley Scott or making these Halloween movies. I was wondering whether your experience on different sets with different directors making bigger, different kinds of projects, horror, whatever, has changed your creative process of writing for stuff that you're doing, like gemstones. Like, are you writing bigger set pieces? Are you like, is there, is there things that you're borrowing from working with somebody like Ridley or working with people like outside of this community and then coming back and working with David and Jody that changes anything about how you write gemstones? Cause this season definitely felt bigger and more action packed. You know, some of that has to just do with like HBO gave us like more time and money than we've had to do things before. You know, like when we would shoot uh, eastbound and down, our average was about four days an episode. And uh, in this, we average about 10 to 12 days an episode. So it just with that time, uh, you know, we're just able to kind of bite off more ambitious things. But yeah, I mean, I've been really blessed. I mean, I never would have imagined that my career would have started as an actor. I mean, I went to film school with Jody and David and, uh, you know, kind of my, I guess, direction or vision had always been sort of to be behind the camera. And when I ended up kind of like lucking into this career as an actor, it's been amazing because it just gives me the opportunity to just kind of show up on so many different sets. Like you said, Ridley Scott said on Covenant or, you know, any of these other really cool directors I've been able to work with. And I'm always sort of just watching and trying to take notes and seeing how other people do it. And it's, uh, and the stuff that's cool, I'll try to incorporate it into what we do. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, if you, if you're paying attention and you're on sets like that, you'd be kind of crazy not to sort of like borrow what works, you know? I'm so interested in the budget conversations with HBO, which are so often opaque to those of us on the outside. And I wonder if it's like, good job, here's your reward, you have more money and more time this season, or they say things like, if you had more money and time, what would you do? And you respond, we are going to have neon snowmobiles. Um, <laughs> and then and then Casey just writes Fucking the Fucking psycho like, ninjas, it, that's what's like, up, man. <laughs> like, like, do you have to sing for your supper in that to that degree? You know what, it's, uh, you're, you know, obviously they're wanting you to make a show that creatively is challenging, but also like tries to be responsible financially. So you, the, the conversations are never over. You're constantly in there trying to fight for more and push for more. And they're just like really good allies with that. They've always like, whenever we've come up with something creatively that we've needed to try to pull off, they've never like shut us down because of finances. Like we'll always just try to get there creatively and figure out how we can responsibly pull something off. And it's been, what's been really fun about working on this show in, in particular with people like Sarah Trost, our costume designer, Richard Wright, our production designer. And, you know, like for instance, the finale, it's like, you know, we're shooting the show in South Carolina. And when these pages show up that like the ending takes place in Alaska, and snow, <laughs> you know, like there is a question from them of like, how the fuck are we doing this? <laughs> you're like, we got to figure it out. We got some wizards that are working on this thing, but then it is, you just kind of use old school filmmaking tricks of just trying to figure out like, how do we suspend disbelief? How do we, what do we need to do to get away with this? How do we do it? How can we shoot it uh, efficiently to get the most bang for our buck? And that's a large part of what's so fun about making the gemstones is because you're collaborating with Jody Hill and David Green and Michael Simmons, the DP and Richard Wright. And, and all these people have so much experience and they're so intelligent that it's fun to sort of be presented 
with these obstacles and try to figure out amongst us, how do we do it? How do we pull this off and, and push everyone to their limits? I think that's really a hallmark of all the work you guys have done together for HBO, which is that no matter how silly things get on screen, the seriousness of the filmmaking is really evident and kind of a really supportive and strong backbone. And for me, it kind of unlocked, this is already over a decade ago, I think, but I remember I met David Green at a screening he did for the Dion brothers, this like great, lost classic film that I hope everyone listening can somehow find a bootleg way to check out. Um, he, he hosted the screening at BAM and it's just like absolute mayhem on screen, but he's watching it being like, well, this is how they did this. This is how they pulled that off. And I, and I wonder how much of that still just informs what you guys do and gets you excited. Are you thinking about paying homage to your heroes or your favorite film scenes? Or is it about pushing yourselves being like, well, we already have this template. Now we can have a motorcycle chase. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know, I think some of it is also just keeping ourselves excited about what we're doing and pushing ourselves to try things that we haven't tried before or to bite off storylines and, and take big swings at things that we haven't done before. And, you know, when we first sold Eastbound, I, I remember that, like, there was always these conversations, even at the, with the studios at that time period, when people were making comedies, that there were cinematographers that shot comedies, you know, mm -hmm. that there was some sort of, like, you know, oh, if it's a comedy, it needs to be bright and it needs to be in wides and like, you know, all this just sort of like bullshit rules that like some, I don't know where they were even coming from that somehow this was the standard. And a part of me feels like it's like rules that would apply to like maybe a stage sitcom, you know, that like you want that to be bright or something. I, I'm not sure, but we always were sort of trying to move against that, you know, like when they told us that we needed to get a uh, a comedic cinematographer, we just like pulled our buddy Tim Oron, you know, had just come off of like George Washington. It wasn't necessarily like he was banging out like, you know, Beethoven second or anything, <laughs> Big Mama's house. You know, he was, uh, he was shooting, you know, in an artistic way. And we just, uh, we liked that. Maybe it was the fact that we all met in film school, but you know, there's an attention to the craft and there's, uh, there's just, I don't know. To me, there's genre should not dictate like, how much energy you put into making something look good. I mean, it just feels like you got a chance to show people something. You should be pushing everybody involved creatively as far as they can to try to make it the best product it can be, to make it look the best, to challenge the music, the sets, the costumes, everything. That's also like when we were growing up, like Beverly Hills Cop looks good. You know, yeah. like a lot of those like 80s comedies that we grew up with, like you would look at, and that's always the funniest thing when you look at like a cinematographer's IMDb from around then. And it's like they shoot Chinatown and then they shoot like three Charles Grodin movies. <laughs> you're like, yeah, man, nice career. Um, with you and, and David and Jody, I was curious about whether or not for the directorial duties, but also just creatively, is there a division of labor or are you guys like a, a Coen brothers triplets at this point where you're kind of using the same brain or how do you divide up? Like, is there, are there episodes that are like, Oh, this feels like a good episode for David. This feels like a good episode for Jody. This feels like a good one for me. Or is it more schedule based? Uh, it's a combo of both. You know, uh, when I'm writing the show, I'll keep in mind, like there, there will be things that I'll think like, you know what, this, you know, I want to see Green's take on this, or I want to see Jody attack this. So there is thoughts about that. And we've all worked together so much that we kind of, I just kind of know what I feel like those guys will respond to material wise. And, 
And uh, I know like from shooting with them, like Jody loves sequences. He loves like uh, he loves shooting the hell out of something and, and making it look wild. And like David can't stand shooting like inserts and things like that. Like he doesn't want to. Uh, he wants to be able to like just play with the actors and not worry about that other stuff. And so sometimes when I'm kind of dividing up the scripts, I will sort of like push it in the direction of what I think will entertain that guy and make him like invested and have fun, you know? So is it the first AD who has to step in and shoot the penis going through the people <laughs> shot? Because David's like, this isn't for me. Guys, like, I don't do inserts. Those, are, those yeah. are the inserts that David enjoys to shoot. <laughs> I see. I see. Okay, good to know. Um, a lot has been, you guys have talked about this at length, so we don't need to delve too much into it. But I know that you and David um, moved to South Carolina from LA where you had been, and, and you set up the production of the show there. And you're obviously giving a lot of local support to, to people who work there. I I guess it's sort of a larger question I have about bringing people into the fold because you guys have worked together and known each other since film school. Even if you aren't, I did like the idea of a Cohen triplets, but even if you are not exactly that, you guys have a shorthand with each other. And yeah. as each project has grown, more, you know, select people have come in and come into the family. And this feels like the largest, uh, the largest family you've assembled yet. And I wonder what it's like for you guys to know if someone can play. And maybe just to make it a little more specific, like one of the most dazzling things about this season of Gemstones is Eric Roberts shows up and I'm just like, excuse me, this is Eric Roberts? Like, who's been an actor forever and has been great in things and, you know, maybe forgettable in some other things. And all of a sudden you're like, oh wait, he's from Mississippi. And oh my God, he's like electric, you know? And he just seems to have intuited this part like it was in his blood. And the ability to know who's going to be ready to come and chop it up with you guys, I find that really fascinating. Yeah, you know, we when we're, we're with casting, it's like the, you know, we would like, you know, this is kind of something that I picked up from Green back in the day. But, you know, Green loves to like cast non-actors. He loves doing that. And it's like something that he's really good at. He can get like very interesting performances from people who've never stepped in front of the camera before. And I think that approach has always sort of inspired us that instead of like just like casting like, you know, the flavor of the month comedian that like, you know, sometimes it can be more interesting to cast someone who's never done anything funny before and see what can happen. You know, I feel like as crazy as this show is, you know, with like cycle ninjas and shootouts and all this like sort of like heightened insanity, none of it really works if the performances don't have some level of being grounded somewhere, you know, that like that the actor knows how to, uh, to at the end of the day, like land it, you know, and, and to make, the person feel like they're a three-dimensional character, even if they're like completely nuts, you know, they still have to feel like there's some rhyme or reason to why they act that way. And um, I think, I think that just makes us try to find these actors that can do that, that somehow can walk that tightrope. I mean, Walton Goggins can do that. Like he can be completely hilarious and can sell basically anything. Like he, he knows how to bring heart and humanity to the most vicious shit. And it becomes something that just, yeah, I don't know. You just like to watch it and it gets us excited and we can kind of tell on the set when it's happening, you know, when it's like you're watching it with one eye thinking like this is the most random, insane thing I've ever seen. And then the other, you're like drawing a tear because somehow it's like it's connecting with you, you know, and that's sort of always what we're looking at. I think to work with us, you don't even need to be someone who just is like really good at improv. It's like not really required like if you can go for it but uh but it isn't sort of like the the one element that we're like looking for when we cast people i i gotta ask about walden goggins since you brought him up like i don't really know what the wayward years of my life were like before <laughs> baby billy was in them like i feel changed 
because of it. I think it's one of the most be- most in- insane and beautiful performances on TV maybe ever. And I, 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 I I'm so I'm, first of all, I'm just grateful. But second, I just wonder what it's like working with him now because obviously you work together on Vice Principals and he seems to have created someone who has always existed, whether inside of him or in the world. And it doesn't feel like a character. It just feels like someone. And I, I wonder what what is the creative process with him like now when you're sitting down with him and you're like, okay, so you're gonna fish your newborn son out of a porta potty this episode. <laughs> and you know, and and I know you don't need to be like you're gonna sell it because obviously he's gonna sell it. He's a fucking pro. But like, what is that? What is that collaboration like at this point? You know, I think at this point we've worked with each other long enough that we all like he trusts us. Even if it's something crazy like a toilet baby birth comes up on the script, like he trusts us. You know that that we won't make him have egg on his face at the end of the day. But he has thoughts and ideas, and we like welcome it. You know, like I'll send him the scripts, and he'll call me back, and he'll have like this thing bump for me, or I feel like instead of this, maybe Billy would do this, and uh, we we invite that. We we like it. You know, it, it's funny when you said how he just sort of like taps into something that he's always known or a character he's always known. You know, when I sent him the scripts for Vice Principals, when I was calling him to see if he wanted to like join me in that, I kind of knew him. I'd known him socially, but like we hadn't got as, you know, to be around each other or work work with each other. And uh, when I when I called him, he just picked up the phone and then without any direction from me or anything, he just started doing Lee Russell, just giving me <laughs> lines back, you know, and it was exactly what we we're looking for, you know, and that's the same kind of thing with baby Billy before we even knew how baby Billy was going to fit into the show. Uh, I did like makeup tests on him. I just had a vision that I wanted Walton to play an old man. Like I just felt like there was something in it that was just but like old man, Rick Flair, which is the yeah, fucking craziest yeah. part about it. So we actually did like a makeup test and everything before I even had a, a name for the character or how the character fit in or anything. I just wanted to see what Walton looked like. If we could pull off something realistic with him and instantly the mannerisms he took on what he did. It just like, it convinced me like, Oh, he can do this. And this would be like very entertaining to watch this. And so after taking those photographs of him as an older man, I went and then created the character around that. It's also baby Billy. The season is our window into where gemstones happens chronologically on earth because you know, I, I wasn't sure if it was pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, <laughs> but apparently Baby Billy's coconut oil cures Cobus. Yeah, Cobus. Yes, it, uh, it does. It does indeed. That's why he's out there trying to do the good Lord's work and cure everybody. Some of my favorite episodes are the the interlude episodes. And I think that that's something that has been so awesome with Gemstones is this idea that almost every character you meet has this incredibly detailed, rich backstory and that you could have interludes about almost every character and that, you know, like my my mind like wanders off to like, maybe we could do or we could have done like Spotlight, but with Thaniel, you know, like we could have had like his early days as an investigative reporter. Um, for you, like how how deep does it, the rabbit hole go with these characters? I mean, do you do you have like very detailed backstories for almost everybody on the show? We, uh, we do. And then like some of it is also just like letting the story, let us know where it goes. You know, like when we, we have these concepts entering the, the second season and as we start executing some of those, you see some of them work and then some of them take you down like rabbit holes you weren't anticipating and you start kind of finding where, where it lies. And yeah, and that's sort of kind of how we always approach it. I mean, we plan everything out for sure. But I think that we're just, I'm open to the idea of like, let's beat everything. Like, let's challenge everything. Let's see where these characters take us. 
how does your emotional barometer work when it comes to uh, breaking story and writing the scripts? And, and specifically what I mean is you were talking before about how if the characters or the actors can't bring something genuine at the root of it, then there's nothing there, which is so apparent in everything that you do. But it's an incredible balancing act, right, to have characters and specifically like just thinking about like Judy and BJ who will spin out past Mars, you know, in wherever they're going verbally. <laughs> but one of the most essential things about the characters that I was really moved by this season is that they love each other, right? Like yep. they, 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 there's a tendency in, um, you know, in sort of like like a Jenga style of comedy where like you just keep yes anding it until there's nothing there anymore and they could spin off into wherever they're going to go. There's a, there's a foundation there, right, that they keep coming back to and you actually found more story in them staying together. And it's more rewarding both for the characters, I would imagine, and also certainly for the audience. Yeah, and th- th- you know, that comes from just us figuring it out, you know, getting in there and you're right. It's like you, you know, I don't want it to be totally nihilistic. Like I like the idea of like exploring assholes and, and selfish people and egomaniacs, but I feel like that alone is just like, that's kind of easy, you know, like it's, it's, uh, it's easy to just like write someone who sucks, you know? Uh, it's harder to write someone who sucks and then somehow have a, have someone who doesn't suck kind of identify with that person. And so then it just becomes a little bit of, uh, of sort of like taking what's wrong with these characters, then figuring out like, well, how can this person serve as like a mirror to the average person? You know, the average person doesn't respond to things like Judy, but what can we give her that like suddenly will make someone invest in Judy and, and, and root for her redemption or for, what's important to her in her life coming her way. And yeah, I guess it's just about trying to channel empathy in some way. It's like, if we're going to go this far with these characters, like let's just make sure that it's not just like an exercise in meanness, I guess. Yeah. Well, sadness is still sadness, even if you're listening to Simon and Garfunkel on a jet ski, right? (laughs) That's true. That's true. It's still sad. (laughs) So sad. We've all been there. (laughs) (laughs) I wish. I read that there's, there's less improv on gemstones than there was on there. There's been on like previous shows. Like, are you, are, is that you or is that like the cast? Like, are you becoming a little bit more like, Hey, scripts, the script. So it's like, let's at least do it like this way for now. Or no, we don't, we, ne- we never give anybody any, like you have to do it this way. We never okay. do that. Like I-, I love the alchemy of just like what anyone is willing to bring in that moment. And then just go following it. I, I love it. And we never want to shut that down. I think that like, we, we definitely improv in the show, you know, church lunches. Well, a lot of that, like we'll start riffing on those things, but uh, you know, Eastbound, we would maybe get through one take that was on script and then the whole thing would just become fucking. I've loose. seen the bloopers. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, and vice principles, you know, we started, we started sticking more to script, but we still would just like riff and, and do the same stuff. I think in this, it's just, it's just a different type of show. I think when you're balancing this ensemble and you're, cutting around in a 30 minute show to like four different storylines with four different characters. Uh, everything becomes more focused of what needs to be like achieved in the, in the scene, you know? And so suddenly you might have a funny improv run, but then when you start looking at it in the cut, it just starts to stick out. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I kind of started feeling that way about some improv in, in general. Like I felt like there was a big, uh, you know, everyone was kind of doing improv with comedy for a while. Like it became a very big thing. And I started to be able to kind of like sense it, you know, yeah. like it, it, not that the shit wouldn't be funny, but you would sense it. You would be like, this is where the movie like goes on pause for a minute while like the guy who came in for one day, like was allowed to go on a run, you know, and then everyone's just standing there. And then it's like the scene's over and you might have laughed, but then you get back into the movie again. 
And so I feel like we wanted to try to push our improv a little bit into like riff on jokes. If you want to riff on whatever you want, but I almost like appreciate the riff on the line of just like, find your own way to get to this. So it sounds authentic, you know, and uh, it doesn't sound like, you know, four people in a writer's room came up with this, like bury it, uh, use improper syntax, do whatever you need to do to sort of like make it seem like the way someone would talk. I have a real question, but I feel like Chris buried it here a little bit that like he and I have been friends for 26 years. And at this point, I feel like if you scratch me at the surface, the foundational document <laughs> propping us up is the Ashley Schaefer BMW improv reel. <laughs> just, just the presence of Gabriel and the farmer's market plums. I mean, this is this is important shit yeah. that you put into the world. So we have to acknowledge that. Um I, I, I guess the question I have is coming more specifically to your performance as Jesse, because this is, you know, at least in terms of your HBO shows, the third in a Olivier-like run of, 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 of portraying. Okay, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm just going to stop, actually. That was the end of the sentence. Of, 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 of portraying a very, very specific type of white American male, you know, and particularly just relishing the moment when, like, the white, hot, lava of ego encounters the icy cold winds of reality, you know, and then still pushing, <laughs> pushing through it. And, you know, it's kind of incredible Like this is this not to make this like a, a rip from the headlines question, but like to have encountered Kenny Powers, like in a pre Trump era, and then now you're still exploring this character and there's still more to it. I guess I'm curious about what what continues to fascinate you about these men and those moments, you know, like the, the, just just like even in gemstones, just Jesse showing everyone the video from the hotel room, you know, and <laughs> yeah, absolutely terrible. convinced this is the right choice. <laughs> you know, the right thing. Like he's helping. I mean, I, he's good. <laughs> he's the hero. I, I think something, you know, some of it, I just find that type of person funny. Like I feel like there's, there's material there and it's someone who's self-absorbed. I mean, everyone can relate to that. Everyone has seen someone who's self-absorbed and it's, uh, you know, I, I do find it kind of like there's, I do find it's like fruitful. There's a lot of stuff there. But, uh, you know, I think some of it just also comes from like how we're structuring these stories. You know, like I was talking about earlier with the getting the comments from studios and stuff that like comedies need to look a certain way. When we were sort of coming up and we were trying to sell like the foot fist way, like a lot of the notes we were getting was that it just it didn't fit what a comedy needed to have. That a comedy, you know, like that that, that main character needs to be likable and you needed to have like things that, you know, that makes the audience like this person. And I feel like that like sent us into a malfunction that we've never returned from, which is like proving that point wrong that like, I don't need to like the person I'm laughing at, you know, like I, I can, I can enjoy this story without like elevating this person to some other level of like, you know, of, of ambition that I, you know, I, I just feel like I don't experience Like I don't watch a horror movie and think like, I need to be able to like the guy who's murdering everybody. You know, it's like, I'm watching a comedy. It's like, I just, I just need to, this shit to be funny. I don't need him to have some list of virtues in order for it to work. And so I think when we started kind of going down that road, we just start to kind of like find the story to be more interesting when it was like recalibrated from stereotypically, what would be the bad guy. And then like kind of running him through the kind of hero's journey, but from a villain's point of view, it just started to kind of, I don't know. We just started to find an area where we like to play, I guess. I still, I mean, the thing is, is that even if you like love, hate, whatever Jesse, it's like when Jesse's walking down the beach after he figures out 
the the listens or the like the villains basically it's like people everybody can identify with that moment that oh shit moment like the walls are falling in and like that that whole sequence in the finale is just so amazing and eric andre just kind of like showing up behind you and being like i can explain what was he like as like you know not an antagonist because like you don't know it for most of the season but what was it like working with eric and, and what was it about him that made you think he was right for that part you know, Eric was, uh, he was awesome. I, I absolutely like adored working with him. He's such a fucking funny dude. And I had been a fan of his for a while. Like my, my son's 10 years old, but I mean, we, we watch a lot of comedy together and we watch the Eric Andre show. Like, I mean, he's like, you know, he was watching it when he was like, oh, he's still too young to be watching it. But <laughs> we, we, uh, <laughs> this tracks with your on-screen parenting, I must yeah. say. But this- like, I mean, he would he would scream with at Eric Andre just destroying his set and like just the oddness and weirdness of it. Uh, I just always have been into uh, his style of comedy. And uh, and then when he had bad trip out last year, I just found it to be so fucking smart and so funny and just such a good example of like, the charisma that Eric has and then just the little devious motherfucker he is too. And like, it's the perfect uh, little balance. And uh, yes, we reached out to him in regards to this. Cause it just felt like, man, that would be fun energy to have on this set. And uh, Eric has that perfect amount of charisma. I felt like to kind of pull it off and yeah, we sent it to him and, and luckily he responded to it and came down and played with us. It was awesome. I got to understand this. So your son, when he rebels against you, What's he going to turn to? Like home improvement? Like what are the comedies that he's going to start to watch to like fuck with you he'll, a little bit? He'll just turn all the shit off. He won't. He'll, 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 he'll cancel the subscriptions. Is what he'll, do. <laughs> he'll subscribe to Showtime, the motherfucker. That's right. <laughs> he's like, I like billions, dad. Take that. <laughs> what, what, what are the sneaky great things about the show I find is that as someone who is not religious i was gonna try to like dance it up like no just not religious is that for all of the insanity of the world the gemstones inhabit like there are aspects of it and certainly the way you shoot it it feel kind of fun like going to a big show on sundays with a band that seems fun having a nice lunch i'm into it you know (laughs) what else are you doing on sunday work off that hangover sit around yeah Uh, i guess i I guess i wonder how much how much you know i know that you grew up uh, more religious and, you know, you p- people who are religious in your family. And obviously the South is a more religious region than godless Los Angeles, the worst certainly <laughs> city it's currently sitting in. Um, how has your relationship to religion changed and how you want to um, portray it on the show? You know, um, I just feel like religion is like one of those things that like gets so personal to individuals, you know, like I've, I've seen religion work for people in my family and I've seen it not work for people in my family. And, uh, so I don't know. It just feels like one of those things like I don't have like a definitive sort of answer from it. I mean, I definitely grew up going to church and I do appreciate like the morals it instilled in me. I felt like it did kind of help me kind of have an understanding of right and wrong when, you know, I don't know if I would have gotten those concepts so firmly by not going. I don't know. I'm not sure. But uh, definitely when I became of age, like once it came into like middle school and stuff and I had the choice on my own, I just kind of stopped going. And I it just wasn't something that kind of spoke to me anymore. And, uh, and it hadn't, I had never returned to it. And, uh, but it's weird. Once I started having kids, I did start thinking about like, how do I instill these morals into them without like 
having to go fucking full tilt boogie and like, you know, and, and, and join up into so something. You uh, arrived at the decision to show them the Eric Andre show. Yeah. So like, you know, I think that's this is church. Came, I was watching the Eric. I'm like, this is probably not how they're going to be shaped. Into good people. <laughs> but but I'm going to make a reference that neither of the two of you are going to expect me to make here. But like, I was just reading as many of us probably were an interview with a Yale professor of happiness in the New York times. And you know, you, you want to finish this, Chris? No. Uh, anyway. Um, but, but, what she was saying was that it, there's studies that show that people who are religious are happier than people who aren't, but it's not because of their particular like fealty to certain like commandments. It's because people who are religious in a way that involves church dinners or lunches or volunteering or community that makes them happier no. in the same way that it makes those ideas make everyone happier, you know, and gives them some larger purpose. I, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, you know, we would we would go to church. Like my parents were so involved in church when I was young. Like, you know, we would go every Sunday. We went on Wednesday nights. And, you know, church was a massive part of the people I knew when I was a kid. The children, the kids, the dudes I hung out with were dudes who went to my church. And we'd go on youth retreats together. And uh, it is. It was a big part of it. And I, you know, I remember when we stopped going to church. And then suddenly it was like this whole silence, like on Sunday, all this stuff that used to have life and you'd see all these people and there's all this there. And then suddenly we're just like sitting around watching gun smoke, you know, in our pajamas. And it, it did feel like we were missing out on something. And uh, man, I just think as people, we just want reasons to connect with each other, you know? And I, I do feel like that's what happens when we watch TV shows or movies together or go see a fucking concert together and go to church. It's like, I do think that at its core, it seems like it, it, it like brings people together. And now obviously, you know, it can also cause trouble depending on who's leading the sermon. But I do feel like there's elements of that, that are things that just people basically yearn for or kind of want. One thing people yearn for is more of this show. I know that you're, you guys are already thinking about season three. I don't expect you to be able to tell us much about it, but is there, are there areas or ideas that you've been like dying to explore with the show that you haven't gotten to yet that you might be able to tip your hand towards? You know, we just like the idea of telling this like really large story. And I feel like the audience will kind of, as the season goes, as the show goes and we get to keep doing it, they'll, you know, the story does become bigger. Like that's what we love about the interludes is that, not only are you kind of filling in like a little bit of the backstory for each season, but you're also sort of like watching the history of the gemstones. You're seeing sort of each year how they ended up to where they are. And, uh, you know, there's a disconnect from like the Amy Lee and the family that you see in 1993 and the one that you meet in, you know, yeah. in the beginning of 2018. And I like the idea of like telling the story that kind of fills in that gap and then sort of what happens after that. And it's been a fun way to tell a story, to root it in the past and in the present and sort of see how the choices we make affect, you know, things well beyond what we imagine, whether it's how our kids come up or how we look at the world. It's an awesome saga, man. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And thanks so much for the show. It's just, it's one of the best things on. I appreciate that. Thanks for watching it. You guys want me to send you the Yale interview now? Should we just do should we just do 30 minutes off air about it? Because it's pretty thought-provoking. Nude. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good.